Hi, and welcome to Figure of Speech, a program from WRBH Reading Radio, where every week you can meet local poets and writers from the New Orleans community and listen to them share their work. Today, we welcome on writer Tom Andes, whose writing has appeared in the Best American Mystery Stories 2012, Witness, Guernica, Xavier Review, and numerous other publications. He lives in New Orleans, where he works as a freelance writer and editor, teaches for the New Orleans Writers' Workshop, which he co-founded, and moonlights as a country singer. Take a listen. My name is Tom Andes, and I'm going to read the first half, more or less, of a short story called Nashville Radio. This story came about in a workshop I took in the Kenyon Review Writers' Workshops, I guess one summer ago, and prompt for the story was to write about somebody whose work, uh, their job was very central to how they saw themselves. And that kind of got my wheels turning. The title of this story, and I will confess a couple of the best lines, are stolen from a John Langford song. For those of you who don't know who John Langford is, he was a member, is a member of a punk band called the Mekons, who are these sort of art school, leftist, anti-racist punks who have been around for about 40 years, who improbably early in their career discovered American country music. So this story was a way for me to kind of incorporate two things I love that I think don't always go together in people's heads, which are left-wing socialist politics and country music. I think those things are usually opposite in people's heads. So I will say to put just a little content warning on this, uh, the guy who tells the story, there's a little, he has a little bit of strong, strong kind of homophobic language that he uses from time to time. So I want to put that content warning on the story before I start reading it, just so that doesn't take anybody by surprise. And I'm going to say one other thing, actually. Uh, this is actually based on a little bit a uh, actual experience I had when I was temping. I basically worked with the dude who tells this story for a day when I was temping years ago in Oklahoma. And I just remember working with this guy. We were unloading trucks and he had this Everlast weightlifting brace. And he just kept talking about how, dude, you only need six hours of sleep anyway. So that's kind of the starting point of the story also. All right. The story is called Nashville Radio. The human body only needed six hours of sleep anyway, I told the temp, Bub, who was a Yankee, I knew from the accent, and who looked like he'd been to college. He could have been a fruit, or one of those politically correct liberal assholes you saw on the news media. I adjusted my Everlast belt, picked up another flat of R.W. Nudson organic pineapple juice and 16-ounce glass bottles from the forklift, each one weighed 55 pounds, but I could lift two at a time, no problem, and hauled it to the truck. I was feeling good, blood pumping in my biceps, getting warmed up. Bub struggled under just one of those flats. To look at me, you wouldn't have thought I was inclined to philosophy, or for that matter, much of a word slinger, but my daddy sang his own country songs, and while I might not have followed in his footsteps, I knew that magic was in me somewhere. Maybe you'd heard of my daddy, who got kicked off the Grand Ole Opry after a frolic with one of the hat-check girls, who also happened to be a famous record producer's daughter. Back in the day, he had a couple radio hits, including the classic Living on Backstreets, Loving on Main, but like ice cream socials, family farms, and the sacred bond of matrimony between a man and a woman, he was forgotten now. Bub yawned while I said all that. 
Peter, his name was, he corrected me. Like it mattered. He'd be gone tomorrow. Peter Pecker picked a pint of peppers and couldn't eat them. Or maybe Peter the Pickle Puffer. I wanted to give him a good-natured ribbing, but he looked like he'd probably cry. An aristocrat. So what was he doing in a shipping center in Bunghole, USA, a.k.a. Bentonville, Arkansas, working for the mega corporation folks like him hated? Moved here from Tulsa a few years ago myself, I said. Time went faster when you made a little chit-chat. Besides which, I wanted to draw the guy out. I might have come off a little gruff, but I was pleasant as pie when you came right down to it. A talker and a man of the people, like my daddy before me. And like him, I took an interest in things. More than that. Even if Peter was a little different, I guess I still wanted him to like me. When I asked where he grew up, Peter said, all over, like it was a place. He had a nasal voice, and I imagined him standing in the manager Troy's office, same kind of stuffed shirt who'd been riding me all my life and who threw my daddy off the Opry, despite the fact he'd given his life to country music like God gave mankind his only begotten. Peter stumbled with a flat of pineapple juice, and I had to help him. He needed to hurry because while he might not care, my job depended on how quickly we could empty the pallet on that forklift and all the ones after it. But I couldn't have Peter dropping things either. Like this. I showed him how to get under the flats and pick them up so he wouldn't feel it in the morning. Doing the guy a favor, but he grunted like he was too good to take advice from a hillbilly like me. His business if he wanted to wake up a cripple. But it was my problem if we didn't make our quota by noon. Any chance for a smoke, bro? He asked. It was 9.30 and he'd been there less than an hour, hauling one flat to my four. Like he was any brother of mine. I've worked here eight years, buddy, I told him. Which was the truth. No reason to lie about that though I didn't mention losing my CDL or the divorce, the first wife I was still paying on, Esme, who worked 290 feet down the hall in accounts receivable and who would never understand about me and her kid sister, Amadine, as if Esme shouldn't have been flattered by the fact I'd gone with her sibling, considering the strong family resemblance between the two. What was I trying to say? That job meant something to me. Unlike Peter, I'd be there tomorrow. Thing about my daddy, he'd never wanted kids. Not with a barfly like my mom, who was a falling Mennonite, having rebelled against her strict upbringing among the brethren in Eden, Oklahoma. Didn't want married life, and in that respect, the apple hadn't fallen far from the tree. Not that I was volunteering details, but let's say yours truly, J.J. McBride, short for John Jr., son of John Jacob, got around. I'd just gotten to that part of the story when Peter the Pecker Eater dropped a crate of pineapple juice. The plastic snapped, bottles rolled across the floor and shattered, yellow liquid streaming down the cement like a puddle of cloudy piss. He spread his hands, 
like he knew I was going to beat his ass. Dude, he said, looking around like somebody else might have done it. And though it could have cost me my job, though I imagined Troy's disappointed face since he'd probably have to write me up again, I'd already called Bro-Man a panty waste. Which was when he told me he was Troy's kid brother. Cut to a scene in which I'm sitting in Troy's office, which is air-conditioned to a brisk 45, like he believes that whole global warming hoax and is trying to do his part to reverse it. And Troy's head has inflated like a big red birthday balloon and is floating off his shoulders. Or at least that's how it seems to me. He's talking, but I only seem to hold on to every third word, the rest of them dribbling out of my hands like I'm trying to raise the living water to my mouth but can't drink, though I know what he's saying is important, that my life, or at least my livelihood, depends on it. Other thing about my daddy that got him in trouble back in Music City, he was a communist, a red, which comes to mind then too because of Troy's face and because his shirt is just about the same hue. Troy is the kind of guy who never made the team and spends the rest of his life trying to make up for it by bossing around the people who picked on him in high school. But Peter is a punk, by which I mean not a kid with holes in his face working in Starbucks, but a guy who gets cornholed in prison. He's standing next to Troy's desk and grinning like he's enjoying this, and I guess he is, since it gets him out of working half the morning. One thing I do get from that conversation is the words half-brother. And from the way Troy says it, I gather he isn't too fond of Peter either, like he wants to put a little distance between them. Then Troy gives me a piece of paper to sign, just like he's done a dozen times, a formality. Only now, instead of a written warning, I'm being told to take the rest of the week off without pay, which is a kick in the balls, it nearly being the first and Esme already breathing down my back about my payment on the half of the house she still owns, but I live in. And before I can say anything about that, Troy hands me another piece of paper, which says my tenure at the corporation is pending the outcome of a disciplinary hearing for using hate speech. I look up from that checked box at Troy's cleft chin, which has a dimple in it you could park a tractor in, and so help me if I don't have a tear in my eye. Seven years ago, Troy transferred up from the warehouse in Sugarland, and while I might talk him down from time to time, at Bedrock, we're all right. Family ties or not, what he's doing amounts to treachery, and I'm man enough to say that hurts. But then I remember my daddy, and I buck up, just like he did, when those sausage manufacturers who wanted everyone in Nashville to sound like Trisha Yearwood tanked his career, taking their petty revenge for the fact he stood up for the working man and, of course, for that incident with the producer's daughter. If I'm going down anyway, might as well go down swinging, like my daddy did. When I stand up from my chair, I must do it quick, because Peter backs up, hiding behind his half-brother, like I wouldn't roll over Troy like a dump truck if I wanted to. But if I've learned another lesson from my daddy, 
It's that the written word is mightier than the shotgun, or the pen slayeth the proverbial sword. So while I might enjoy watching Peter the peckerhead piss his cargo pants, I don't do anything more threatening than point at Troy, flexing my biceps a couple times, making the veins jump, so he'll know I mean business. McBride, Troy says, and he explains that his half-brother has come to Arkansas from the great state of Ohio, and that Peter is taking a year off from Oberlin College to get some practical experience in the working world, which even a dumbass like me knows means he failed out. But guys like Peter always get second chances. Troy shakes his head. I put him with you, hoping you'd show him the ropes. I take a step toward the desk, but Troy puts his hand on the phone. You come any closer, he says, and I'm calling security. I have it in my head to say all kinds of things about how the other half of Peter's family must be the one with the looks and the brains, as well as the college money, if Troy thinks it's a smart play treating me this way. But I must be overcome, to use a word my daddy often did to describe my mother, because that isn't what comes out. Troy? I lean across his desk, putting my face close to his, but he's all talk, this man with a narrow necktie, and he still doesn't call security. You're a rotten son of a bitch. That's all I can think to say. He keeps his hand on the phone and doesn't budge, not even when I slap his desk calendar, knocking over the pencils in a coffee cup that says, World's Best Bass Fishing Dad. You can call in on Friday, JJ, he says, and I'll tell you what time your hearing will be on Monday. This corporation takes hate speech very seriously. This is step five. Step five. Step six, and you're out. He sounds like he's reading out of an instruction manual. Hate speech. As if what I said wasn't perfectly natural among working men. As if college boy is really a homo and not just butthurt because I called him a mean name. I shake my finger at Troy one more time, puff up my chest, widen my shoulders, and stalk out of the room. That peckerwood talked my freaking ear off, Peter says as the door slams. I did a couple months in Washington County lockup on account of getting busted with the roach in the ashtray of my Dodge, which is how I lost that CDL, and I'm in no hurry to repeat that. Though it takes all the self-possession I have, I managed to stop myself from going back in that room and kicking his ass so hard it wedges his ears. When I shove the front door of the warehouse open and walk into the sun, nobody's watching, but Esme's office looks onto that lot, so I can't let on how riled up I am, not even now. Can't give her the satisfaction. It's only Tuesday morning, but my week is over, and I feel like I've lost everything. I make it halfway to the van before I realize I'm still wearing the Everlast. All the way home that day, I kept thinking about my daddy and the last time I saw him alive. I thought about his funeral train, 
which had started in Bakersfield, California, and ended up in Oaxaca, Mexico. That place my daddy had described as heaven on earth. A giant party that lasted six days. All these people crawling out from under rocks, saying how they loved him and were friends of his when they'd never had two cents or the time of day for him when he was alive and struggling to find a pot to piss in. But that's the way the world treats great men. It spurns them, and it only does them the honor they deserve when they're dead. You'd probably figure a guy like me to drive a Dodge Ram or a Ford F-150. Something in the line of a pickup with those fake testicles they give bulls to preserve their self-esteem. In fact, I was driving my daddy's 79 Dodge A100 van, which was green, with three on the tree, meaning it had a clutch on the floor and a stick shift on the steering column, and which was the same vehicle he'd toured in during the dark days near the end of his life when he was playing with pickup bands and couldn't trust any of the hangers-on to tune his Gibson, never mind count the money at the end of the night. I parked in the lawn of the ranch house on H Street that Esme and I had bought when we'd moved to Bentonville from Tulsa, went inside, and cracked a six-pack of old style. On top of the mortgage, I was still paying Esme back for her half of the house, and I was more afraid of her than I was of the Bank of Arkansas though since I didn't want to be homeless, I still mailed the mortgage. By the time Friday rolled around, I'd gone half out of my mind, and I'd heard twice from Esme, once to tell me she was hoping I'd make my payment on time, and again to tell me she was still expecting the same. By that morning, which also happened to be the first, I hadn't sent the check, and I hadn't told her what happened with Troy and his pencil-neck half-brother either, though she must have known considering how news traveled around our workplace, which was a regular nest of gossiping pit vipers, worse than an episode of the Kardashians. She called it lunchtime. Two Underwood deviled ham sandwiches with stone ground mustard and a half-gallon carton of 2% from Marvin's IGA. She was on her break. I looked in the mail this morning, JJ, she said, turning the screws right away but I didn't find an envelope from you. She tisked, tisked, tisked. Me staring at the glare on Montel Williams' bald head on the television. Same way I might do if she was in the room. Shutting down, she used to call it, which was a funny way of saying, waiting out the storm. You've never been able to control that temper, have you, stud? The fact her sister was named for a French dish that involved green beans might have given you the impression Esme's family wasn't the classiest bunch, and you might not have been wrong about that, though Esme had always wanted better for herself than her seven brothers and sisters, which was where we'd connected. We'd had dreams. Once upon a time, we'd planned on opening a coffee shop and antique store in Rogers, hoping to get in on the ground floor before that whole Starbucks craze hit northwest Arkansas. But like so many plans, that had turned to dust in our hands. Some men were made for rambling, and even if I hadn't gone far geographically in my life, I was one of them, just like my daddy. But more than that, hard as we worked, Esme and I just couldn't get ahead. And sooner or later, 
That had ruined our marriage, driving me to do what I'd done with Amadine. I'm going to need a little extra time this month, I said. Are we not going to talk about this? She asked. I reached into my mouth and removed gummy day-old sourdough and deviled ham from my palate with my thumb. It was a quarter of twelve, but I was still in my skivvies and an undershirt, and I hadn't shaved since Tuesday. Ordinarily, I got up at six, but I'd slept till ten that day, like without that job, as trivial as it might have been to people. My whole life was a house that just folded up with nothing to support it. We don't need to live in the past, I said, meaning Tuesday, but meaning all of it, too. Though I didn't see what business it was of hers, what had transpired between Troy and me down at our end of the facility. She gave an unpleasant little snort, like she knew something I didn't. You're turning into a no-account Yahoo, J.J., she said. And you're going to shoot yourself in the foot and ruin everything in your life, just like your dumbass daddy did. Now, first of all, where I come from, talking like that about a man's daddy is like purchasing a non-transferable one-way ticket to ass-kicking city, tantamount to insulting a man's entire family line. But another fundamental dictate holds that a man should never hit a woman. My ex-wife Esme was therefore exploiting a loophole in the code I lived by, which allowed a woman to say and do things that would have earned a man a quick trip to the ER. And it wasn't the first time she'd done that either. Having burned, for instance, my favorite rhinestone suit, which my daddy had left me, on the lawn of that same house where I was now living the night she caught me and Amadine on the couch. Let's not start talking like that, I said, trying not to let her provoke me, because I also knew that underneath those words were deep wellsprings of hurt. She'd never been able to forgive me for what I'd done with Amadine, never been able to understand how in a weak moment a man can say and do things that don't express his deepest self. Never been able to understand about my daddy, either. That it wasn't him that shot himself in the foot, but rather that he'd been too good for the world. A prince among men, too full of fire and life. And so the world, or at least the country music establishment, had tried to snuff him out. Talking like what, she said. The truth? Just because you don't want to look at something doesn't mean it don't exist. I'm talking about the elephant in the room, the one with its foot on your head. I told her she watched too many talk shows, which are always trying to get people to yap about their feelings, as if there were something noble about spending half your life sitting on a couch and crying. Wallowing, my daddy called that, at least when my mama did it. Though underneath that, I'll admit I felt the sting of truth like there was something I hadn't wanted to look at, like a shadow or a speck of dust at the edge of my vision, dogging me all my life. After all, I was the one sitting on a couch, same one Esme and I had bought for 145 bucks at the flea market in Fayetteville, and on which she'd eventually caught me in Amadine, 
And while I wasn't crying, I was feeling pretty bad for myself. So even that sandwich didn't taste good. Be that as it may, as May said, an expression she threw around when she was trying to sound smart. You might be having some time to catch up on your daytime TV pretty soon. Word around the office is Troy's going to ride you out on a rail over this. I laughed. She'd never understood about men. Not about me and my daddy. And not about me and Troy either. I wasn't sure Peter qualified. Troy's a good old boy, I said. I heard you tried to come at him across his desk. Was that what they were saying around the water cooler, I asked. Old hothead McBride. Good for a few yucks while those ladies in payroll gobbled down their Chick-fil-A. I should have charged admission. That's what I heard. Gloating over the phone, and that was too much for me. She'd always known when to twist the knife. Now that's a goddamn lie, I said. Temper, temper. I could hear the little thrill in her voice, same as always, like she was happy she'd zinged me. I wiped my face with my hand, took another glug of milk. The carton was empty. You'll get your check, I said, hoping to put an end to the conversation before it went any further south, before I said or did something really stupid. Amadine says hi. Esme's voice changed when she said that, same way it had earlier, like she knew something I didn't, and prickles went up and down my back, sweat beating under my arms. The two of them still lived together, if you could believe that, in half a duplex I guessed I was helping them pay for in a subdivision in Springdale, a household I imagined being like a den of witches, with frogs boiling in pots, probably with locks of my hair and pins sticking out of voodoo dolls in my shape to boot. And if you thought you were going to drive a wedge between us, she said, you've got another think coming. My daddy was a hero to the working man, I said, because there wasn't much else I could say. As I'd told Esme a thousand times, I'd been wrong and I was man enough to admit it. So if she wanted to steamroll me by throwing her sister in my face, wasn't anything I could do except sit and take it. I'd messed up, plain and simple. Broke, and still blaming myself for the fact we'd gone upside down on that commercial property in Rogers. And there was Amadine, living with us after she'd moved, so she could get away from bad influences in Tulsa, all fresh-faced and 22, like a younger version of my wife, one I hadn't disappointed yet. You know, Esme said, my sister always said you were a tiger in the sack, and I guess we were agreed about that, but she never could understand why I'd married you on account of you being so pig-headed. You should hear yourself still ranting about your daddy. You don't understand, I told her, but I might as well have let her subject me to more abuse because the damage was done. I felt like a badger cowering in a hole 
like my head might explode, my brains popping out my ears. The words were coming, but faster than I could spit them out. If your daddy was such a hero, Esme said, a wasp zeroing in for the kill, why'd he leave your mama knocked up and living in a trailer while he drove around the country, playing his stupid songs and trying to stick it in every piece of chicken he come across? Your mama worked every day of her life in that goddamn laundromat, so why isn't she a working man too? I started to tell her it wasn't the way she was painting it, that my daddy had been a man of the road, born to ramble, a natural man who ate when he was hungry and drank when he was dry and took his loving on the run when and where he could find it. My mama had ended up third shift manager at the Mickey D's on Interstate 44, the famous one on the Will Rogers Turnpike in Veneta that spans all four lanes which wasn't bad for a woman who'd come from a bunch of Mennonites living in wagons, and she was doing fine if I did have to help her from time to time, probably watching her soaps while she ironed her uniform right now. But Esme didn't want to hear it. And anyway, now she'd got her licks in, conveniently enough, she said she had to go because her lunch break was over. You can't keep running from the truth forever, she said like she had a direct line to the capital T truth, the bat phone to God. And I kept hearing those words the rest of the day after I hung up. Well, I sat home and licked my wounds. So by the time I called in to find out from Troy what time my hearing was going to be on Monday, I felt really terrified, like I'd already lost everything and was now about to lose just a little bit more. Three o'clock, Troy said and I waited for him to say something else. A little word of encouragement to let me know he had my back like old times. But there was only dead air, a photocopier or a fax machine running in the background, and I could have sworn I heard Peter's voice, and then a click, and silence on the line. That was New Orleans-based author and editor Tom Andes. And that's our show. You've been listening to Figure of Speech, a program of poetry and writing from WRBH. You can catch it every Saturday at 1 p.m. as well as on Mondays at 9 p.m. Thank you for listening.